you would please open your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1. Uh, if you are visiting with us this morning, we are, uh, just began this uh, sermon series just a couple of weeks ago uh, in the Gospel of John, and uh, we uh, have in this first chapter uh, two different Johns that are being referred to, and so for the sake of clarity, uh, I'll just call them John the Writer and John the Baptist. Sometimes we can get confused if we're not as familiar with this particular chapter. Uh, but during our first week, we learned uh, that Jesus is Lord. We, we learned that John is, is front-loading his gospel with all different elements uh, regarding the identity of Jesus. And so we learned that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the light of life, that Jesus is love. And then last Sunday, uh, we focused on John the Baptist and how he is not the Savior, right? He was a prophetic messenger preparing the way for Jesus to come. Now, when we think about John the writer uh, and he bringing this complete focus upon the identity of Jesus right at the very beginning so that whoever receives his gospel, they know right away who we are waiting to see and he comes to us. Uh, Jesus shows up uh, in our very first verse of our text this morning. Now, before I read it, I want you to focus on the primary thing that this text is teaching. It is focused on Jesus as the promised Savior. Very simply, we are learning this morning that Jesus saves. And the primary application of the text is that we should tell others. And so for my young friends who are taking notes uh, this week and uh, for their various clubs, uh, we would just encourage you to uh, take that down as the main thing. Theme, it's right there as the title of the sermon, Jesus Saves, Tell Others. You're going to be able to follow along by three different points uh, that I'm going to make. I'm also going to have a few sub-points, but if you just get the three points, then you will be just fine. So please follow as I read uh, John chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to, him, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. History has been marked by a number of very important announcements. If you just think of American history, you might think of Paul Revere's announcement as he declared the British are coming, the British are coming. Now, that was a call to arms so that we would recognize the need. Uh, you know, he had the lamp, right? One uh, meaning by sea and one or two meaning by land. Or did I get that backwards? Which one is it? My boys just studied it. Yeah, sorry. And uh, so, you know, he's announcing that they're coming. So that was a critical 
uh, time in our history. But also, if you go to the other end of war, right, and you think about uh, the end of World War II and you think of VE Day, right, the victory in Europe, that announcement, that great celebration, uh, then you think after that of VJ Day, the victory over Japan and the official end of World War II. The celebration, the announcement of that wonderful time was critical in our country's history. Now, you might also think of some more personal announcements, maybe uh, you finding out uh, that you got into your favorite college, you get that announcement in, in a letter, uh, or maybe of a friend's engagement, or perhaps that a child is on the way. History is filled with important announcements, but there's no greater announcement in the history of the world but the one that John the Baptist declares in our text Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if we look at that announcement in the light of the Old Testament, God's people have been waiting to hear those words since the Garden of Eden thousands of years before. And so let's focus first on our main point, that the Savior is proclaimed First of all, the Savior proclaimed. Now, we may hear this announcement with great joy, knowing what it means, but that was not everyone's reaction when they heard John declare or proclaim, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, we're going to consider three different reactions to this proclamation. When John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, some people would be offended. Some people would be excited, and other people would be unsure. So if you are taking notes and you want the subpoints, the question is, what about you? Are you, hearing this, offended? Are you excited, or are you unsure? So first of all, think about those who might have been offended at hearing this proclamation. If you look back in your Bibles at verse 29, it says that this was the next Day. Now, meaning the day after John the Baptist got quizzed by the Jewish leaders about his identity. We looked at that last week. But those leaders would likely still be within the crowd. So when you think about those leaders, they would certainly know the Old Testament, right? They would know that the Lamb of God was a reference about God providing a substitute to be sacrificed for sinners. Now, For those of you that are in school, you might have a substitute teacher, right, that takes the place of your regular teacher. Well, the lamb was a substitute that took the place of sinners. That ritual began by God himself all the way back in the garden. That was when God clothed Adam and Eve's nakedness with the animal skin. So God sacrificed an animal and then as a substitute, and then he clothed their shame in the animal skin. That was a sign that pointed forward, right, to Jesus clothing us in his righteousness by faith, that we would be clothed in his perfect life. Now, the Jewish leaders would also be very familiar with the fact that Abraham performed this similar ritual. Now, if you're familiar with the story in, uh, uh, in uh, Genesis, uh, you know that Isaac was not aware that God had commanded his father right, to sacrifice his own son. 
But Isaac was aware of this very common uh, type of sacrifice of offering a substitute. And so he asked the question to his father in Genesis 22, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? He knew the normal pattern of offering sacrifices to God, and we praise God that he stopped Abraham's hand before he completed his obedience to what God had commanded, and then God did provide an animal caught in the thicket, and that is what Abraham sacrificed in the place of his son. But just look at the language of Genesis 22.7. Isaac said, behold, and then we see the parallel right in our text of John uh, 1.29 when, when the uh, John the Baptist says, behold, it's like he is trying purposely to answer Isaac's question. And so he says, Isaac, the Lamb of God is now here. Where's the Lamb? He is here thousands of years after Isaac lived. God the Father did not withhold death from his son like he did for Abraham's son, Isaac, but rather gave him up for us all. And so the Jewish leaders would be aware of God doing this in the garden. He would be aware. They would be aware of uh, Abraham's sacrifice. They would certainly be aware of the Passover lamb and many other sacrifices that were commanded for the Levitical priests during their time of worship. The leaders knew all of this, and they believed these verses were critical. However, When John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God, the Jewish leaders would be confused. They would be offended that this phrase was being applied, first of all, to a man. That would be very offensive. But if we look outside of the immediate audience of those that actually heard John the Baptist proclaim this with their own ears, and we think about the people that John the writer is writing this gospel to, the people in the first century, there would be both Jew and Gentile, right? They, uh, as we discussed in our adult Sunday school class a couple of weeks ago, what we learned was that uh, glory in the Roman world was all about power. And some Gentiles would struggle with the idea of God's Savior being killed as a sacrifice. And so Jews and Gentiles looked at a savior as a conquering warrior, not a passive lamb to be killed. And so to think that the Messiah, God's promised savior, was going to be a lamb that was slaughtered would have been offensive also to the people that first received this, both Jew and Gentile. But the Jews might also be offended that John the Baptist said that he was going to take away the sins of the world. Right? Some of the Jews only looked at Jesus as the Savior of the Jews. Right? How is it possible that he would be the Savior of the world? Well, they would have to go back to Abraham and saying that God said that he would bless all of the nations through him. And so we see all of these pieces come together, and it would certainly be an encouragement to the Gentiles at that point. So to sum up this very first uh, sub-point, the Jewish leaders would be offended that Jesus was called the Lamb of God, right? The first century people would be offended that God's Savior was going to be sacrificed, and that the Savior was proclaimed by John the Baptist, and that some hearing this would be offended, thinking that he was actually going to save the whole world. 
But others, right, first they were offended, but secondly, others would be very excited. Now, very thankfully, uh, the Lord has promised that He was going to have people in every age, a remnant of people who had faith in every single age. So those that had ears of faith hearing John the Baptist proclaim this are going to see all the promises of God coming together in that particular announcement. So let's think first of all about John the Baptist's disciples. He said in verse 30, "'This is he of whom I said, "'After me comes a man who ranks before me "'because he was before me.'" So John's disciples had already heard him say this, so he's just reminding them of something he's already said, and now it actually came true, right? We know that John the Baptist's ministry came before Jesus, so in that sense, right, John the Baptist came before him, but Jesus is Lord, right? He is God. He has always existed. So in that sense, John is saying, he came before him. Now, his disciples would certainly be excited that what they've been waiting for all their lives, what they've been waiting for and hearing all of his preaching is finally coming true. But what about John the Baptist himself, right? We would think that he's excited, but what does he say in verse 31? He says, I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, how can John say he did not know him? I mean, they were related, right? If you read in Luke chapter 2, you know that Mary and John's mother Elizabeth were related. And so, you know, they're only six months apart in their birth. And even though they lived, you know, one in Nazareth and one in Judea, they would be traveling down to Jerusalem for times of worship. So they would have seen each other at least a few times in their childhood, Right? They, John probably would have heard about Jesus' miraculous birth. There would have been a number of things that he did know, but up to this point, John only knew Jesus the carpenter. That's all he saw. It's just for 30 years, he's just a carpenter. And so John said again, repeating himself in verse 33, I myself did not know him. But he, namely God, who sent me to baptize with water, said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, this revealed that Jesus is no mere carpenter, right? Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John believed that, and he was very excited to proclaim that the Savior has come. But what about the people that first received this gospel, right? Those who had eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe and see all the pieces, all the promises of God coming together, fulfilled in Jesus. They already knew that the substitutionary death was required for the forgiveness of sins. But the blood of bulls and goats and even lambs could not accomplish it. It required a human substitute. That was the only way to pay for human sins. All the other sacrifices were arrows pointing forward to the one lamb of God. And so, we think of those who were excited about this proclamation. First, we saw those who were offended. Second, those who were excited. And third, those who were unsure. 
Now, some people hearing John the Baptist make this announcement might be curious, but not yet convinced, right? Others that first read John's gospel might, you know, find it very interesting, but not totally sold quite yet. Perhaps you fall into that category. Perhaps you're somebody who has grown up in church, and you have heard many different times about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but you would not consider your spiritual life very exciting whatsoever, right? You've heard this before. It's not necessarily new, but please understand, knowing the facts in our minds, understanding what Jesus has done is not what is going to save us. It's not just knowing that it's true, right? It's actually seeing that He has done a work in our hearts, right? That He is doing something to show us that the Savior is proclaimed not just as a historical fact, but the fact that His Spirit is at work in our hearts to say, He's not just the Savior of sinners, He's the Savior of this sinner, that I have faith and trust, and that His Spirit testifies with my spirit that I am a child of God. Now, you may have a favorite musician or a favorite athlete. You know, you might have studied this person's life. You might have read his biography. You might know so many different facts about this particular person, and maybe you even saw this person perform. But if you went up to that person and said, hi, I'm Jonathan. If your name's not Jonathan, it'd be very confusing. But if I said to him, hi, I'm Jonathan, and he wouldn't have a clue who I am, right? Because I only know about him. I don't actually know him. We don't actually have a relationship. And there's far too many people who only know about Jesus, but don't actually know him personally by transferring their trust for salvation to him alone. And so how can we know if God is the one at work in our hearts, drawing us to him? Well, I described that some people would hear this announcement and be offended. So I want you to think about, are you in a place in your relationship with God that you are offended by Him? That you are holding something against the Lord for some past hurt that you have experienced? Now, many times we do this. Our hearts demand that someone take the blame. And because we're sons and daughters of Adam, we usually blame somebody other than ourselves. That's very, very common. I mean, Adam blamed God for giving him a faulty helpmate, right? It was the woman you gave to be with me, right? You know that verse. So if you are holding something against the Lord, I hope you understand how patient He has been with you up to this point. I hope that He will give you the eyes to see that this particular thing He is already using in your life to show you your need for Him. And I hope that by God's grace, you would give over to Him your anger and that you would trust Jesus to heal you. Now, others of you may not be angry with God, but you just are unsure, right? Not quite sure exactly how this all works. Well, your pastors labor each week trying to bring to you the Word of God so that you can understand it. And we encourage you to use all the resources that are available to you. Get a good study Bible. I like the Reformation study Bible myself. 
Uh, bring it to worship with you, right? Read it each day. Spend time, right, investigating the Scriptures for yourself, right? Join us for Sunday school. Get involved in a men or women's Bible study. Join a life group. You just have to fill out the form on the website, and I'll, I'll know that you're interested. All of these activities, however, they don't guarantee Right, that every different question is going to be answered right when you want it to be, or that every uncertainty is going to be solved the moment you show up. But you do have to know that Scripture says faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word, through the Word of Christ. And so the more that we read, the more that we spend time in His Word, the more that we hear it proclaimed, the more the Lord clears up our uncertainty. Now, we all need the Spirit's help, and so I am very glad that we can learn, secondly, that the Spirit provided. First, we saw that the Savior was proclaimed. Some were offended, some were excited, and some were unsure. But then we see that the Spirit is provided. Look at verse 32. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Now, no matter what audience hears this proclamation that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, every audience that hears that, whether by words or by reading, right, they have to have the Spirit at work in their hearts to give them the faith to believe it. John the Baptist believed because the Spirit was provided, first of all, as a sign, He didn't recognize Jesus merely by who he was as a man, and he knew him personally as his relative and as a carpenter up in Galilee. John needed the Spirit to open his eyes as well. And so when John the Baptist saw the Spirit descend on Jesus, that was the sign given to John so that now he was sure that he indeed was the promised Savior. Now, you'll see later in some of the Gospels, he had some doubt about it because it's like, well, what's going on here, right? We can talk about that in Sunday school if you want to bring it up. But um, recognizing that John got this sign and he's now proclaiming this indeed is the promised Savior. So first we see that the Spirit is a sign, right? And then we also recognize that the Spirit provided as a support, right? So we see that John the Baptist, he had a very difficult job to do. Right? He's out there uh, proclaiming, preparing all of God's people for the coming of Jesus. But John was not a normal Levite. Right? You know his father, uh, Zechariah, was a priest, so he was in the line of the Levites, and he was probably trained as a priest as he was growing up, because that's what those people are trained for. And when you see that John the Baptist, you know, he was a little different. If you read the other Gospels, you know, he kind of had a funny diet. He wore some funny clothes. He was out in the wilderness. Right, probably not invited to a bunch of parties, right? But he didn't care. He was there for the kingdom, right? It says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He knew his calling regardless right, of what else was going on, what else was happening. You know, he was viewed as an outsider and an outcast, and the Spirit supported him in his difficult ministry of preaching to the people. So now let me ask you, do you experience the Holy Spirit as a support in your own spiritual life? Are there times that you can reflect on where you 
have this sense of you have seen the Spirit doing incredibly powerful things in your heart. Right? When those things are happening, we are blown away at how God is at work. Prayer is a significant factor right, for the Spirit to be at work teaching us and helping us to walk by the Spirit. Okay, there's no magic prayer, right? It's not like you, you know, just say the right words like a spell. That's not what it is, right? It's just talking to God and depending upon God to do His perfect work. And so when we think about depending on Him, asking Him, give me the understanding, give me the wisdom, give me the the clarity of who you are, of what you have done, testify in my spirit that by faith I am indeed a child of God. Well, that leads to our last amazing point, the Son presented. First, we saw that the uh, Savior was proclaimed, right? Some people would be offended, some were excited, and some were unsure. Second, that the Spirit, right, was provided as a sign and as a support. And then lastly, the Son presented. Look at verse 34. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The Spirit provided witness to John the Baptist that Jesus is the Savior and that Jesus is the Son of God. When I told you that John the writer front loads his gospel with a whole bunch of different titles, a whole bunch of different things about who is Jesus, right? we learn that Jesus is also the Son of God. Now, the only way that that phrase can make any sense to us is because of the Old Testament context in which it came from. You might remember that God gave King David an, a very important promise saying that his son would sit on the throne forever. Now, clearly that was not Solomon, right, because Solomon died. And so, which son is it? Well, we recognize that the promise was in 2 Samuel 7, I will be his father and he will be my son. Jesus was descended from the kingly line of David on both his mother and his adoptive father's sides. He is the promised son of God. We also read in the prophet Hosea, when Israel was a youth, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. This is why Mary and Joseph fled Herod, and where did they go? They went down to Egypt. And so it says in Matthew 2.15 that the prophecy of Hosea is fulfilled as God called his son out of Egypt and settled in Nazareth of Galilee, right far away from Jerusalem, so that Jesus could remain protected. Now, we could go on with a lot more verses about Jesus, the Savior, coming as the Son of God, but let's just look at one more verse in the New Testament coming from John's first letter, and he just sums all of it up when he says, I write these things to you who believe in Jesus, believes in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This sums up the power of God at work by faith in Jesus as the Son of God. If you believe that Jesus is the Lamb, and you trust that He came to not just take away the sins of the world, but to take away your sins, and that you believe that He is the Son of God, 
Scripture. God Almighty, His Word promises that you have eternal life. That is a glorious, glorious truth. But we can't just hold on to that truth for ourselves. Right? We can't just, just keep it to ourselves. I mean, if you had the cure for cancer and you just shared it with your family, didn't want to tell anybody else, right? how could that be loving? Well, we have the cure for death, eternal death. Right? Jesus calls us, and the Spirit has made us witnesses for Jesus. Right? The Spirit came to, made John the Baptist, gave his testimony. He's a witness, and then Jesus said, you also are my witnesses. So the primary application from all that we've learned this morning is simply tell others. Now we know that when we share the need that we all have for a Savior, that we're going to encounter different responses. And it's the same ones that John faced. Right? When we talk to people about Jesus, we're going to find some people who are offended. Right? They, uh, you know, now just be mindful, God doesn't require us to change a heart, right? Can't do that, not even possible, don't even try, right? We're not going to change somebody's heart. All He calls us to is faithfulness, to just pray for people and to share with them what Jesus has done. It's basically from one beggar to another, I just want you to know that I've found bread and I want to share it with you about what Jesus has done for sinners, But the great thing is, not everybody is going to respond that way. Some are going to respond very excited, right? They are going to be like fruit ripened by the Spirit over time, and they're going to, that that fruit's going to fall off right in your hand, right? Before you even knock on the door, the door's going to open. They're going to say, how could I know I have eternal life? And you're like, okay, right? So it doesn't always happen that way, but like, they're, they're so ready, right? They're so excited. They just, all they had to hear is, is what it takes for them to know that they have a Savior, and you share it with them, and they're ready. Now, don't forget, right? whole bunch of people went before you planting seeds, watering seeds, and you just happened to be the one who had the joy of seeing the harvest of that person coming to faith in Jesus. Now, the majority of unbelievers that you speak with about Jesus, about what He has done in your life, are probably going to fall in the category of being unsure. They may know some things about Jesus. They may not be sure how the Bible is relevant today in any possible way. They may wonder and struggle through a lot of these different things that you might find pretty basic, but you got to be patient and realize that your job is simply to plant seeds, to water seeds, Right? You're not going to get a harvest every single conversation. And so we have to be reminded that sometimes we will, and we'll be excited that this person is adopted into the, uh, fa- the family of God, and we can celebrate with them. But there's far too many Christians that think, just because every conversation is not a harvest, therefore I'm a failure as an evangelist. Right? And that's the farthest thing from the truth. The only failure for Christians in this is if we don't pray and we never open our mouths. That's the only time we can fail in this. But if you open your mouth, if you're praying for your unbelieving neighbors, coworkers, family members, whoever they are, you're praying for them on a regular basis, that's evangelism success right there. The Spirit's going to work in their hearts. You open your mouth, right? say, hey, how can I pray for you? easy way to enter into the spiritual world. Just ask somebody how you can pray for them. But every prayer and every word that we speak 
is in and of itself a seed planted, a seed watered, and that is indeed evangelism success. You don't have to wear that coat of guilt saying, oh, I'm just not doing what I should be doing. We can celebrate the Spirit's work knowing that He works through weak sinners like us because you believe the main point that Jesus saves. And so, brothers and sisters, tell others. Let's pray. Father, as we are reminded of this most exciting and glorious announcement. Thank you for giving us the rest of the New Testament to fill out exactly what this announcement meant, to help us better understand in our own lives from time that we've spent learning about you in church and from our families and and spending time in your word ourselves and from various studies. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the way that you have planted seeds and watered seeds and borne fruit in our lives. Lord, we know that it is your call to be witnesses and to bring a harvest for all the nations. It seems impossible to us. Well, it seemed impossible to 12 men 2,000 years ago as well, and yet we're sitting here in Ada, Michigan because of their faithfulness and the work of your Spirit. Lord, help us to have cities of believers come from each one of us by our faithful prayers and our faithful testimony of who you are and of what you have done so that you get all the glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.